Welcome to Africa Calling, a weekly Africa-centered podcast on news and features from around the continent by our correspondents throughout Africa. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Africa Calling podcast on February 5th, 2021. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. We'll be hearing about the top stories from the African continent, including reports from the field and analysis from African experts. We'll hear reaction about the landmark verdict for a Ugandan Lord's Resistance Army commander who was found guilty of war crimes and crimes against humanity. And is Al-Qaeda expanding beyond the Sahel into other countries? We'll have expert analysis on this. We hear from a Chadian lawyer who's fighting to get compensation for villagers who were poisoned by a toxic oil spill. From RFI's Kiswahili service, we'll get more on what's happening in Tanzania with COVID-19. Is there really an outbreak there? We'll find out about the visit of a top Vatican official to Cameroon and the Anglophone regions. We'll hear Uganda presidential candidate Bobby Wine talking about his legal challenge regarding the presidential election results. Zimbabwe opposition are being thrown in jail again, all amongst the backdrop of new sanctions slapped on the country by the UK. We'll hear from our correspondent. And finally, we'll take a look at the upcoming online Africa Podcast Festival, which celebrates the best of the continent. But first, a short recap of this week's news. Mali security officials say 10 soldiers were killed in the central Mopti region when they came under attack from heavily armed jihadists. At least five people have died in an eight-hour gun battle between Somalia's Al-Shabaab rebels and police at a Mogadishu hotel. Retired Major General Mohamed Nur Galal was the target. He died in the attack. The UN says some 20,000 Eritrean refugees are missing after two camps in Ethiopia's Tigray region were destroyed. Eleven presidential candidates have registered with Benin's Electoral Commission, meeting the deadline before the April 11th elections. Africa Calling the International Criminal Court on Thursday declared Ugandan rebel commander Dominic Ongwen guilty of 61 out of 70 counts of war crimes and crimes against humanity. These crimes were committed while Ongwen was in the Lord's Resistance Army in northern Uganda. The LRA was known for its brutality and its use of child soldiers. Ongwen had himself been abducted by the LRA as a child. It's the first time the ICC has judged someone considered to be both a perpetrator and a victim of a crime. After Thursday's verdict, Kampala correspondent Granya Harrington spoke to Victor Ochin, who grew up in northern Uganda during the LRA war. To me, what this means in, the, in, 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 in a personal point of view is it's, it's been too long, war took too long, and also the processes of uh, investigation, ISIS coming in took too long, to the point a lot of people had lost hope on the way, but also... To me, this is a milestone that we we're happy to say that today we have seen the fruit of the journey that we have been in for over the last 15 years coming into a success today. To a bigger picture, it's a very strong deterrent. It doesn't matter whether you are abducted as a child and conscripted to become a killer. There's a moment in life that you know what is right. So you cannot hide behind the command chain. It comes to the command responsibilities. And this goes not only to when, but those in command platforms, whether it be in government or in any opposition, know that it comes to individual responsibilities. You cannot hide behind the structure. If it's justice, it will come to you. So a lot was made of this question of the 
criminal responsibility of Dominic Ongwen. So the defence said that because he was both a victim and a perpetrator, because he was abducted as a child and essentially grew up in this terrible rebel movement, that he wasn't responsible for the crimes that he committed even as an adult. What's your take on that? Yes, he was abducted, but he reached a point when he had reached a command res you know, responsibility. He knew what was right and what was wrong. Ongwen had power to walk away from the battlefield if he wanted to, but he took pleasure in causing all the pain, burning the camp, setting the whole communities ablaze. My own brother was abducted in an attack that was commanded by Ongwen, and up to now he has not come back. So what we say as victims, as survivors, as people directly lost, is different from what academicians, politicians and intellectuals of this world are talking about. There's a big difference between politicians, intellectuals, lawyers, all those technical accolades they're carrying is not the same feeling of what we have on the ground. There's been a lot of debate about whether the ICC is the right forum for these kind of crimes, about whether an international court that is so remote from Uganda can deliver the kind of justice that's really meaningful to the people of northern Uganda and that can contribute to reconciliation. What do you think about that? The traditional justice mechanism is an opportunity to resettle, heal, resettle and allow reintegration in the community. But it's not a substitute for justice. What Nguyen went through, going through international crimes, trial, criminal trial, is the right thing. Even at the same time, it's also a message that, you know, Uganda does not belong to only Ugandan political system, where a political system can abandon or mistreat at will. No. Ugandans belong to international communities. So if Ugandans are suffering, whether among themselves, for whatever reason, the international community should not stand and watch. Another issue that came up a lot during the trial was the role of the Ugandan army and the Ugandan authorities. Um, and for each attack that was cited in today's verdict, uh, the Ugandan army did not protect the people. Do the Ugandan authorities also have questions to answer about their responsibility and the role they played in this conflict? I do believe very strongly, I do believe, having grown up in war, I never had anything, I never knew anything apart from war. I do believe the government in Uganda has so much to answer. And of course, we also have to admit that no government in this world does not make mistakes. It comes down to a Ugandan government leadership to at least demonstrate the sense of remorse. It should not be, you know, begged. It should not be requested. They should think about it. They should feel it in their heart that we had responsibilities to protect. What did we do? Why did we allow the entire generation to grow up in this, you know, vicious atrocities. Think about the damages, the mental, the psychological, the historical, and the trauma that people have grown in from one to another. All I can say, the LRA war, the war between the LRA and the government of Uganda, did leave the country so wounded. The region is so torn apart. The region is so hurt. It needs to heal. Victor Ochin has been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize for his work rehabilitating LRA victims in northern Uganda. Check us out on Twitter, Africa underscore underscore calling. We're at Africa underscore underscore calling. In Cameroon, the Vatican's number two, Cardinal Pietro Parolin, completed a visit to Cameroon earlier this week. 
It was a trip focusing on the crisis in the country's Anglophone regions where fighting between armed separatists and the military continues. The church is trying to encourage dialogue, but it's sometimes been viewed suspiciously by both sides. So did the Vatican's envoy help encourage potential future peace talks? RFI's Daniel Finnan finds out. Cardinal Parolin met with President Paul Beer during his trip and said mass in Bamenda, the capital of the Anglophone Northwest region. The city was deserted during his trip. Anglophone separatists called for a boycott of the visit, although people did turn out for mass. We spoke to Bamenda's Archbishop Andrew Nkia to find out if the Vatican's Parolin helped encourage peace talks. Has this visit changed the position of the authorities in Yaoundé? Will President Beer's government engage in dialogue about the Anglophone crisis, do you think? Uh, we have gone quite a long way in this discussion. The cardinal was able to say to all the powers that be that dialogue was the most important tool for the solution of this problem. I participated in some of the meetings, and it's important to understand that uh, there are so many things, instruments of dialogue and the steps put in place uh, for dialogue to go on. But at least uh, there is a kind of openness for dialogue. But how this is going to go about, I think we also must be discreet in the way we handle those things. Do you think that church leaders from Rome might help lead a process of dialogue? The Cardinal Cardinal Parolin himself said that the church at the universal level, as well as the local level, is open to facilitate this dialogue. But this facilitation depends on the, the actors involved. Uh, we cannot force the partners to dialogue so it depends on the openness of the government and it depends on the openness of uh, the separatists. Given this openness that you mentioned there, do you think things have moved forward? How far they have moved forward, I cannot say. But things have moved at least a step forward uh, in the fact that um, uh, somebody could be able to say the things as clearly as they are uh, and they were accepted from him, I think that that's a big step forward. Now it's modalities that, uh, and you see, one of the big problems we are talking about in this dialogue, there are at least eight to ten different leaders uh, of uh, the separatist groups. This dialogue, therefore, has to involve all these various groups. So that is why it needs more time to be able to reach out to each and an individual leader's get their own opinions, and try to bring them on board. This needs time, and that is a delicate aspect of it. Archbishop Andrew Nkia there. Fighting and violence didn't stop just because the Vatican's Secretary of State visited the area. We understand three people were killed on the Sunday in a village called Semzen in Bue Division of the Northwest. Soldiers searching for separatists killed three villagers who were in the bush to tap for palm wine. The military mistook them for so-called amber boys. Africa Calling, produced by Radio France International. In Chad, a group of villagers in southern Chad will get their day in front of British mining giant Glencore after the UK government accepted their human rights complaint. 
They claim toxic oil spills by Glencore poisoned their drinking water, harmed people, and destroyed farmland in Badilla. The complaint was brought by London-based Rights and Accountability Group, or RAID, along with two Chadian groups, the Chadian Youth Association in the Oil Zone and the Public Interest Law Center. Lawyer Delphine Kemnalum Dijarebe spoke to Africa Calling about the problems people had after the oil spill in 2018 and then a later spill in 2020 that is still under investigation. People that have been in contact with that infected water, recently in July there is a sudden one. That's really a big tragedy because the, the water infected the source of water. It's the Nia Pende that all villagers are using. It's about 18,000 people that live in this area. So people are, are using that same water that Glencore is claiming that it's not infected, that they aren't getting sick. I think that is a big chance for people just to be considered that as human beings because the behavior of Glencore is just disturbing. That was lawyer Delphine Kemnalum Dijerebe from the Public Interest Law Center in Jamena, Chad, speaking about her clients. RFI's Kiswahili service on the line. We now turn to the Kiswahili service in Nairobi. Tanzania's health ministry this week announced it has no plans to accept COVID-19 vaccines, maintaining that the Eastern African nation does not have the virus. But reports and sources from RFI's Kiswahili service note that there have been deaths, even though talking about the deadly virus is taboo in Tanzania. We have Emmanuel Makundi, editor from RFI's Kiswahili service in Nairobi, to bring us more. Mambo vipi kaka Emmanuel? Nam salama kabisa dada Laura habari za Paris. Asante na wewe? Mimi naendelea vizuri, naendelea vizuri. Asante. Ah, ndio. <laughs> Sawa. So, Emmanuel, we're talking about the COVID-19 pandemic that seems to be getting worse across the African continent and, of course, in other countries around the world. But what about Tanzania? President John Magufuli says it doesn't exist. What do you know about COVID-19 in Tanzania? Well, uh, thank you, Laura. We have been following the, the story very closely. It is yet to be clear that uh, Tanzania has a covid or not, though, uh, according to some sources that uh, we have been talking to in Tanzania, and they are saying two or maybe one or maybe three of their colleagues or relatives have passed uh, due to COVID-19. Yes, and this week uh, some people are saying maybe uh, talking about COVID-19 in Tanzania it's like a taboo, but in a real sense, uh, from the sources that uh, are in Tanzania, they can confirm categorically that uh, people are suffering from the COVID-19 and recently there were a lot of uh, reported death, though uh, the government, neither the families have confirmed whether it was COVID or not, though we also know that uh, the first vice president of Zanzibar, Malim Saif Sharif Hamad, has contracted COVID and is, is receiving treatment. Okay, so, so there isn't a problem in Tanzania if people go out on the street with a mask on, like in other countries where people are made fun of because these people claim that COVID doesn't exist. If, uh, For example, if I go to Tanzania and I try to put a mask, uh, some people will look at me in a weird way because uh, 
I have friends who are wearing masks but uh, they are telling me that well people are looking at us uh, strangely they think maybe you know and last week uh, one of the mayor uh, in Kilimanjaro when he was organizing the the council meeting before he started he he make people who were wearing masks and tell them please uh, put off your mask before we continue with this meeting. So you can imagine even people who are wearing masks, they cannot uh, sit comfortable, especially in the public places. Though I can see uh, right now people are, are turning uh, back and wearing the mask, but uh, it's also like a taboo. If you wear a mask, then people will look at you. Now, are there plans in place to test people for the COVID that's not there but might be there? Um, and what are people saying about this? Well, that is very interesting, Laura. It, it was a very uh, heated uh, debate uh, for the past three weeks. You remember the Minister of Health uh, issued uh, orders uh, on how people can test. Uh, before, for the for Tanzanians, it was only 40,000 uh, Tanzanian shillings, which was uh, almost uh, 10 or 15 USD. But now it's almost uh, 100 US dollar uh, for everyone. So it does not necessarily, if you are Tanzanian, your amount is lower, but everyone has to pay to get a test. And also the test is only done by uh, through the national uh, laboratory. So uh, not any other hospitals that were allowed to test for COVID, but rather the government uh, is holding on on that and that uh, if you want to take a test, for example, if I go to Tanzania and I want to come back to uh, to Kenya, I will have to have my test uh, one week before travel because there's a lot of people, long queues at the National Laboratory People are missing their flights. So it's a, it's a little bit uh, crazy. And then it become very crazy when the government said uh, uh, that uh, it is uh, 100 US dollar. What about vaccines? If they're telling people to use local herbs and sometimes wear masks, I mean, this could be a great preventative if, in fact, it is not there, which is what the government keeps asserting. Um, is there any plan to order vaccines? Well, uh, the Minister of Health had a meeting with the uh, journalist in Dar es Salaam and uh, she categorically said that uh, the government uh, recently has no any plan to order vaccines. And if it has the plan, then the government must ensure that uh, the vaccine is safe for the consumption of its citizens. So the minister, she said, we don't have a plan to order vaccine this time around, but if it happens, then we will order. But again, before we issue to the citizen, we will have to make sure that we ourselves satisfy ourselves that the, the vaccine uh, uh, can be used to, to humans. So it doesn't say again that they will not order, but they are saying they are going to delay in ordering the vaccines. And you know, uh, last week, uh, World Health Organization urged the government to order the vaccines that was Emmanuel Makundi, editor of RFI's Kiswahili service in Nairobi. The management of the COVID-19 outbreak in Tanzania is worrying those outside the country as well. Dr. John Kengasong, the head of Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, has called on Tanzania to cooperate with them on fighting the coronavirus. 
Tanzania's uh, stand is uh, a stand that I hope they will uh, review that quickly. Uh, this pandemic is dangerous. Uh, we truly don't uh, uh, understand and how these uh, things will evolve, but not cooperating with the, the, the Africa CDC or the rest of the public health experts in the world will make it challenging for everybody. This is a dangerous virus, a virus that spreads very quickly, and a virus that knows no border. It doesn't know whether you are a Tanzanian or you are a non-Tanzanian. I think it will spread if we continue to um, not work uh, in a cooperative way. That was Dr. John Nkengasong, there from the Africa CDC, speaking during a press briefing this week. Find us on your favorite podcast platform app, including iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. France's top spy chief warned this week that jihadi groups in the Sahel are pursuing expansion into the Gulf of Guinea. Bernard Emier, in a rare public appearance, said al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb are focusing on Côte d'Ivoire and Benin. RFI's Daniel Finnan takes a closer look at this high-level public intelligence briefing. It's an unusual step for Bernard Emier, head of the General Directorate for External Security, the DGSE, to make such a public speech. Notably, he revealed intelligence said to show a meeting in Mali between top commanders of al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, or AQIM, as it is sometimes known. Amier speaking alongside French Defence Minister Florence Pali in Orléans, said they obtained a video of the meeting. The agenda of this meeting was the preparation of a series of large-scale attacks against military bases, he says. This is where the leaders of al-Qaeda in the Sahel designed their expansion plans to the countries of the Gulf of Guinea. These countries are now targets too, to loosen the grip in which they are caught and to expand southwards. The terrorists are already financing men who are spreading in Côte d'Ivoire or Benin. Fighters were also sent to the borders of Nigeria, Niger and Chad, where several groups born of Boko Haram continue to establish their networks and to murder. Amier described these jihadists as the spiritual sons of Osama bin Laden and said AQIM was France's number one enemy in the region. He described several hundred fighters using motorbikes and pickups, saying the group was made up of foreigners, not those from Mali. To unpick the spy chief's comments, we spoke to Lorian Teru Benoni, an expert at the Institute for Security Studies, a South African think tank. What evidence do you think there is about attempts to expand, push armed jihad into other countries like Côte d'Ivoire and Benin, given what we've seen with deteriorating security in countries neighbouring Mali like Burkina Faso and Niger? So that Al-Qaeda's affiliated groups are planning activities beyond the Sahel should not be considered as a novelty. Um, in terms of trends, when you look at a map of uh, the expansions of violent attacks between 2012 and now, there's an obvious spillover. First, you see an expansion within Mali, 
then you see uh, an increase of attacks uh, outside of the borders of, of Mali uh, as of 2015. 2016 is when you see increasingly attacks in northern Burkina and uh, western Niger, uh, with an intensification of that trend in 2017. And then 2018, 2019, you see uh, a spillover of attacks all the way to the southern border of Burkina Faso, which is the northern border of Benin, Togo, Ghana and Côte d'Ivoire. Is the worry here about particular targeted attacks? Because we've seen those in places like Côte d'Ivoire's Grand Bassam in 2016, or more sustained insurgency and fighting. Both Benin and uh, Côte d'Ivoire have already uh, witnessed incidents that were attributed to uh, violent extremist organizations. It's important not to think of the goal of the violent extremist organization to simply conduct attack everywhere. There's a need to also secure specific routes through which they can access material that they need, through which they can move human resources around, and from which they can also access funding. When we think of the spillover, all these dimensions should be taken into consideration. These comments by the DGSE boss suggest there's some amount of sending fighters to different fronts, or at least that's how it's suggested. Is this what's really going on? It kind of makes it sound like there's an operational command shunting units of fighters here and there. The fact that Al-Qaeda is very organized should not come as a surprise. Uh, and again, the, the fact that they send specific uh, fighters or I would say even just human resources, because we know from our work that there are all kinds of people involved in these groups, uh, some who can fix motorbikes, some who can uh, fix guns, others who can just uh, pick information and, and move it around uh, the place. And so they need all kinds of human resources. And the fact that they move these resources across the region in order to uh, get what they need in terms of funding, operational means, um, and also to, to be able to recruit more is not something that uh, we discovered in the context of the speech by the head of France's intelligence. What is the political context to bringing out the French spy chief in terms of France's presence with Operation Barkhane? We don't often hear from these intelligence bosses in the press, and he unveiled specific information the agency had gathered. What is France's play here? The information, as I highlighted, was not a novelty, but what is new is the fact that someone like him would share information of that nature so openly uh, in the media. Uh, but it appears, and this is also the hypothesis that many of my colleagues have put forward, uh, that it's a way to prepare public opinion, both nationally and probably among key stakeholders in the Sahel and West Africa, for a review of the security apparatus and, and system ahead of the upcoming G5 Sahel summit to be held in Chad in mid, uh, mid-February, I believe. Lorian Teru-Benoni, there from the Institute for Security Studies. Much of her research focuses on the links between extremism, organized crime and community conflict. In late January, the Malian army said a joint operation with France's Operation Barkhane led to some 100 jihadis being killed. Other operations, such as an airstrike at the start of January in Mali, have been criticised by human rights groups for allegedly hitting a wedding ceremony, killing civilians. 
Africa Calling. Ugandan opposition leader Bobby Wine this week filed a Supreme Court challenge opposing the results of the presidential elections. Incumbent President Yoweri Museveni won the July 14th election with 59% of the vote. However, Wine's National Unity Platform Party want the polls canceled and repeated. Election campaigning was marked by a crackdown on Wine supporters and the authorities shut down social media in the country ahead of the polls. Wine was arrested in November for breaking COVID-19 restrictions. His arrest sparked protests and clashes with police left dozens dead. During a press conference, Wine says Ugandan authorities rigged the polls for Museveni. Uh, if it was not because of the irregularities, I would be by now introducing myself as president-elect. The military actually took over the election besides the videos of police officers and soldiers ballot staffing um, voting for people or coercing them or even uh, taking away our agents from the polling stations. We also have evidence of predict ballot papers that were brought for staffing and were seized. We have evidence of uh, people that, that were registered voters and they passed away. On Friday, Justice Simon Biabakama, Electoral Commission chairperson, has called on the Supreme Court to throw out the presidential election petition filed by Wine against incumbent Museveni for being filed past the deadline. Correspondence Call In Zimbabwe, the UK government this week imposed targeted sanctions against four top security and defense chiefs in Zimbabwe. The measures were done in response to rights abuses committed by the security forces in the three years since Emerson Mnangagwa won disputed presidential elections. In a sign the authorities are tightening their grip on dissent, three prominent female opposition officials were detained this week for allegedly insulting police. The three survived an alleged abduction by state security agents last year. Correspondent Ryan Truscott has more from Zimbabwe. We're talking about two things that are happening in Zimbabwe right now. The UK government has imposed targeted sanctions, and the other is that a number of opposition MDC officials have been arrested. Why have they been arrested, Ryan? Has this happened before? Well, the MDC Alliance MP Joanna Mamombe and two other party officials, Netsai Maroa and Cecilia Chimbiri, were arrested in the central business district of Harare on Monday, and prosecutors say the women shouted at police for transporting suspects on the back of a truck uh, with police officers with no attempt at social distancing. One of the MDC officials, Netsai Maroa, was uh, released, but Mamombe and Chimbiri were detained on charges of undermining police authority and held at Chikarubi maximum security prison outside Harare. These women are no strangers to Zimbabwe's police cells. They've been arrested on several occasions, uh, notably last June, after they were allegedly uh, abducted by state security agents and tortured. The police accused them of, of faking their abduction to tarnish the image of the government. They are still facing charges over that, and before this latest arrest, they were out on bail. Wow. Now, do you think there's any link between them being taken in and the fact that the UK has imposed sanctions at this point? The arrest on Monday actually preceded the announcement of these new sanctions by the UK. So on the face of it, the two events don't seem to be related. But certainly there will be some within the UK government who feel vindicated. Uh, There has been a clampdown on critical voices in recent weeks. I'm thinking of the arrest and detention of journalist Hopewell Chinono and MDC official Job Sikala and party spokesperson Fadzai Mahere. 
They were arrested last month for tweeting about alleged police brutality. The UK embassy in Harare has responded to Mamombe and Chimbiri's arrest by saying that free speech is guaranteed in Zimbabwe's constitution. It says it's following this case closely. Obviously, there will be fears over their health as prisons here haven't been spared infections from COVID. Uh, last month, Mahere, the, the MDC spokesperson, actually contracted COVID during her time in Riemann prison, uh, though she is said to be recovering now. Mm. Now, the UK removed sanctions when President Emerson Mnangagwa came to power a little bit after. Is this an indication that Mnangagwa is presiding over the country in a similar way to former longtime President Robert Mugabe? Or is that the perception of, of the UK government, you think? The UK had been party to the EU uh, sanctions on Zimbabwe. But since it left uh, the EU, they have uh, now applied these autonomous sanctions on on four uh, individuals, uh, and they are the Security Minister Owen Nube, uh, who's the head of the State Security Ministry, Uh, also Isaac Moyo, who's the head of the Secret Police, and uh, Godwin Matanga, who's the head of the regular police force, and the head of the Presidential Guard, Anselm Sanyatwe. What this is about is the UK believes that these four officials were responsible for the worst human rights violations uh, since President Mnangagwa took power uh, back in uh, 2017. And the four sanctioned officials are blamed by the UK for being behind uh, security crackdowns against civilians, firstly in the, the wake of the disputed 2018 presidential polls and again during uh, fuel riots in January 2019. The UK says that 23 civilians were killed in those two operations. Contrary to expectations, there hasn't been a a great deal of reaction from the Zimbabwe government yet. It is preoccupied, though, at the moment with the recent deaths of high-profile officials from within the party and the civil service from coronavirus, and that might explain its tepid reaction to these sanctions so far. Mm. And what about the opposition, um, the MDC officials who were arrested? How are they reacting to these uh, sanctions? I mean, how do you see this? Well, I think that if, if Nelson Chamisa's party is celebrating, it's certainly not doing it openly. His MDC alliance has been consistently accused by the government of lobbying for Western sanctions, charges that it denies. So it may be wary about being seen to be celebrating now. We don't know if the party will welcome these measures. Uh, they are meant uh, to pressure President Mnangagwa's government to carry out political reforms. The MDC alliance has said it is prepared to talk to Mnangagwa about trying to end a long-running political, economic and social crisis here, uh, despite not recognising his presidential election victory uh, three years ago. Africa Calling. In Nairobi, it's Africa Podcast Day on February 12th, and two Kenyan podcasters are celebrating in style by holding a virtual podcast festival. Co-directors Josephine Karianjahi and Melissa Mbogwa aim to celebrate and appreciate the talent within the continent's podcasting industry, but also to highlight the importance of African voices telling African stories. Established podcasters, those trying to break into the business, and people interested in learning about podcasts around the continent are welcome to join the discussion. We had a chance to speak to Africa Podcast Festival co-directors Josephine and Melissa, who tell us more about their vision for podcasting on the African continent. 
This year's theme is We're Proud to Be Here, and podcasting is growing by leaps and bounds throughout the African continent. As co-director of Africa Podcast Festival, how do you see the industry? This is Melissa. The industry is currently at a very exciting stage where you know there are a lot of independent podcasters and uh, studio makers, producers, and audience members who are growing in number. And it's at that point right now where people just need to connect and organize in order to then take the industry to the next level. Over the next few years, we do expect to see a lot more organization around uh, podcasting in the community and of podcasting on the continent. Now, what are some of the challenges for accessing podcasts on the African continent? I mean, most people, I would uh, would assume, uh, listen from their mm, cell phones. You know what? This is Josephine. What uh, One of the things that uh, is a big challenge is that a lot of people who are listening on their mobile phones are in the Android space. And a lot of the content providers are creating space on the uh, iOS platform so that people can access their podcasts there. So a big challenge would be to encourage uh, Android uptake in terms of new content. There is a huge challenge also in terms of the cost of data um, to be able to access the, the net and to be able to download episodes when, whenever you might need to. The cost of data is can be quite prohibitive across different African countries. You know, sometimes uh, the big challenge is that there isn't uh, an equal amount of electricity coming to your area. So you might have a podcaster who really wants to produce, but they may not necessarily have a regular schedule and not necessarily be able to record at the time that they wish to record. So these things can be quite frustrating. The other thing is that it's an opportunity in podcasting where young people can really find their new career. They can uh, flex their skills and talents and go into the podcasting space. But there isn't uh, enough investment in their unique voices and their unique talents. And they will definitely create when there's an opportunity for them to start figuring out how to make money from their podcasts as well. There's a big youth vibe coming out uh, of the African podcast. Is there anything that you're looking for on the African continent that you haven't seen yet in podcasting? Oh, that's a, this is Melissa. That's a really interesting question. I think what we haven't seen, I think we can only say what we haven't seen is more of what we can already see has started. For example, we can see a lot of like true crime pods. There's a theme there around wellness. There's a theme around like culture, identity and history. Um, as well as current affairs. So we, we're just excited to see more of that coming from very different parts of the continent and different countries where the world is not used to hearing authentic stories coming from. It sounds that you respect African local languages. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how, how podcasts can, can promote that? This is Melissa. So definitely, um, as you rightly said, Africa is a place of so many diverse cultures and languages. And we expect, we've already started to see and we expect the growth of the industry to come from many more podcasters speaking to their communities in their own languages. And already we've started to see this um, through through the podcasts that exist. As far as the languages that, that are widely spoken on the continent, so Swahili, Arabic, Harik, Yoruba, Zulu, and so on, we're starting to see quite a number of them popping up. So this is an expectation we have um, about the future of the podcasting industry is that it is going to be in 
very many languages and uninhibited by the language barrier. The half-day festival on the 12th is free, and they'll be live-streaming from YouTube on the 12th. Africa Calling will also be participating in the festival. Check out our website or www.africapodcastfestival.com for more details. Africa Calling, produced by Radio France International. We're almost at the end of our program, but we have music maven Alison Hurd in the studio. Hi, Alison. What song do you have for us? Hi, Laurangela. I'd like us to remember this week a great South African singer, Sibongili Kumalu. She died sadly this week, aged just 63. She had a wonderful, warm mezzo-soprano voice, and she sang with a lot of versatility. She was a jazz singer as well as an opera artist. She could do everything from Brahms to the more indigenous uh, choral music that she grew up with when she was young in, in Soweto in the 1960s. And she had a real uh, joie de vie which made her very popular across all kinds of uh, ethnic groups in South Africa. That's why she was chosen to sing at Nelson Mandela's inauguration as South Africa's president in 1994. So I've chosen her rendition of a great South African masterpiece called Yakal Inkomo. Yakal Inkomo translates as the bellowing bull. Uh, some people think that it was a reference to the 1960 Sharpeville massacre. We can't be sure of that. But remember that in the 1960s, of course, it was a time when a lot of South African musicians were going into exile, a really difficult time in South Africa. The way that she performs this song, you can really sense she's bringing her very own distinctive style to the weight and the history of South Africa at that time. It's very powerful. I hope you like it. Thanks, Alison, and thanks for listening to Episode 16 of Africa Calling. We'll leave you with Sibongile Kumalo. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. This episode was produced by Daniel Finnan, edited and recorded by Erwan Rome and Nicolas Doho. Goodbye for now. Calling go home.